This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Today is the morning that we'll hear um, the city's long-term financial plan. It's not a budget itself. That process doesn't go until early next year. I hate to break it to you. Early next year is in like three and a half months. I don't like that either, but it's true. And at 10.30 today, the city's going to host a uh, briefing with the city manager and the interim chief financial officer and treasurer, which um, is Stephen Conforti, and the manager is uh, Paul Johnson. Again, I don't know how often you're at the disco on a Friday night at 11 o'clock. You're, you're, you're in the club. There's bottle service. Is this still a thing? And you're like, what do you do? I'm the interim chief financial officer and treasurer of the city, damn it. I don't know if that's a, that's a thing. That transpires, but they sound like important titles and important things will be set. And somebody really important, the mayor, will talk around 1130 about what's going to transpire here. So um, this has been a big question. What does a city like Toronto do with a massive budget deficit? It's tough to generate their own revenue. I was even explaining to my kids earlier this week that other cities have their own revenue tools in Europe. And I'm sure they have it in Asian countries, and I know they have it in American countries. You go buy a pair of Nikes for 150 bucks, let's say, 3% of that cost of the Nikes is go, so $4.50 per shoes, $2.25 a shoe, is staying in the city. The city gets that money. And um, there are plenty of taxes and little things here and there that New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Mexico City can generate on their own. Canada doesn't have that system. It's something well worth revisiting, but I think you know and I know we're not going to revisit it before the end of 2023. So we need to come up with ideas if we're going to spend money. And there has been money pushed around. We're going to push ahead. Probably it's pretty ironclad with um, with FIFA. We're going to push ahead on this World Cup scenario where we're going to host five or six games in the city in 2026. But we haven't thought of a revenue plan that generates money for that. I've mentioned this before. Vancouver, new mayor, new council, snap of a finger. They just figured it out. By the end of the year, they applied a 2.5% tax on short-term accommodations. Hotel, Airbnb, Verbo, whatever. Um, this sounds like that uh, Calvin Harris song with Katy Perry. Anyway, um, they're, so they're going to put an accommodations tax in for every week, every month, every day. Until they've paid for the 2026 FIFA World Cup upgrades. They don't have as many upgrades as we do, but it's an idea that Toronto just has ignored and and just hasn't done. So um, there's important conversations to have here. I think that's obvious. Here's one of the new budget chiefs, longtime counselor Shelley Carroll, who makes the point that there's good, there's necessary work to be done and she has to get after it. We need to make big moves because we have a big problem. We need to have a big conversation about how we sustain the city into the long term. Okay, pretty simple stuff. She used the big word twice. She used the big word twice. Um, She's been on city council quite a while um, and uh, and obviously was city councilor in Don Valley East going back to 2003. So some of why there's a big problem is prior members of council. So some of that is, I think that's obvious and we could attribute blame here and blame there. I'm not, I'm not lumping that all in the, onto Shelly Carroll's desk, but it's impossible to say whether it's Shelly Carroll, whether it's Gord Perks, whether it's Stephen Holiday, whether it's Brad Bradford, whomever, um, they all 
bear some element of responsibility for the city being where they are right now. And so do some of the ex-counselors. That's for sure. You did witness this during the campaign. So what makes today interesting with Olivia Chow is during the mayoral election, nobody gave fewer financial details about what they do in the long term than Olivia Chow. Like, I think even the, even an Olivia Chow supporter, you're nodding. You're nodding. You don't want to nod, but you're nodding because you know that that's true. You know that that's true, that she was she played a front runner campaign, said very little, didn't step in the mud, didn't have a bunch of um, uh, mis- missteps and mistakes that she had to apologize for. She just kept it very simple, so much so that every other single candidate, again, you, she's leading in the polls. She's got a big um, element of machinery behind her making a comeback to politics after nine years. A lot of people were ready for it and they were ready to work for her. And they got a hold of the voters. But even Mitzi Hunter, longtime Scarborough Guildwood MPP, got frustrated during one of the debates and told Olivia Chow, you're not telling anybody anything. There's no plan. There's no plan. There's no transparency. And, you know, I think that Torontonians deserve better when they select their mayor. Okay, exactly. And that was a big talking point during the campaign. You're not telling anybody what your plan is for a reason. Now, here's the other thing. Uh, Olivia Chow wants to create new housing, potentially through a vacant homes tax. But the numbers came back in from the vacant home tax in April. Here's her on the campaign trail in June uh, describing what she wanted to do. But I'm going to track back and tell you that this this doesn't have this is not a, uh, you know, a basket that has any Easter eggs in it. It's just not a vacant homes tax in Toronto. Here's her plan to create affordable housing, doing it via a vacant homes tax. Today I'm proposing a historic program, an affordable, secure homes plan. And this fund is an investment of $100 million into this fund to bring people together to actually buy the building that are at risk So the plan is to buy buildings with money from the vacant homes tax and then turn that into subsidized housing from the public. There were a couple candidates that didn't like that idea one bit. Here's the problem. They looked at how many vacant homes tax. And and I admit there's an element of self-reporting. It's a little like Canada Revenue trusts you to do your own taxes until they see that you're not doing your own taxes right. And then you get a call or or that terrible envelope that comes a month after you've spent your refund. And they're like, what about this thing? Explain this to us. 2,100 properties in the city were reported empty through the vacant homes tax. 2,100. So the entire idea was a bust. They were hoping for a ton more. Vancouver put one in in 2017. Um, And they found a lot of um, empty properties in Vancouver. Toronto's thinking, look what Vancouver did. Let's do that. It ended up being a bust in in 96 percent of residential property owners submitted declarations. Is your property occupied? Is it not? We're not Vancouver. Like we're not one of these ghost cities. We have people here that want to live and work here. I mean, the rent alone that some landlords are asking tells you there is demand. These places aren't just businesses are office buildings might be, but residential areas certainly are not. So we'll see. 1030 announcement from the city. Uh, city planner. Um, and of course, at 1130, Olivia Chow will uh, make statements and I'm sure take questions on this front. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Pierre Polyever was in Prince Edward Island and you're like, what the heck? He was just here in studio with uh, Alex Pearson a couple days ago. True. 
but he's out in Prince Edward Island. And uh, I will tell you, I have an absolute relation to this reporter having this happen. But then I realized this was my fault. This is a reporter named Teresa Wright. And she uh, is attempting to be asked Pierre Pauly ever question because there have been a lot of wire stories about conspiracy theories. Now, you heard me two days ago say Pierre should not talk about the World Economic Forum. Pierre should talk about gas prices and home prices and home heating prices and the like and making Canadians feel prideful about themselves. He should do all that stuff. Stay in that middle lane. You will win. There's no question about it. Kick out a couple of the crazies in your party. There's some extremes, extremes of the on the left, extremes on the right. Hang in there in the middle. That's my advice to him. So either sometimes, once in a while, and hey, it's not like the prime minister doesn't do things where he steps in it, and it's not like Jugmeet Singh doesn't. Um, so I can, I can absolutely, the job, the job is treat everybody equally. But I saw Pierre Pauly ever get asked a question yesterday that I don't think the reporter, I really don't, would ask Justin Trudeau. And if he says, give me a source, give me a name, one name, you got to be able to do it. Here's the exchange you can judge for yourself after and text me at 416-870-6400. But this happened at a Petro Canada station in Prince Edward Island yesterday afternoon. A number of your own comments and actions have been um, characterized as dog whistling to By the who? far right. By who? by a number of by different who? but i think it's been by characterized who? by that way but by are who? you trying to court are, I, I are you trying to, to court the clarify, far right sorry i just need to clarify by who by a number by of who? different experts and a Ex- number of who different are the people experts? who work who, who, who are the work experts? in this okay well i think right. it's been established that right. this is this is yeah, a concern I, I, are not, you trying to court the far right vote i sorry I, who are these experts you say that there are experts who are saying this who are they my question is, are you trying to court the sorry, far right I, vote? I, I'm sorry, your question uh, seems to be based on a false premise. You can't even uh, tell me who these experts are. It sounds like it's just a CBC smear job. Thank you. But, Next but what about the question about whether that's the, the answer the is that I'm, I have a common sense agenda to axe the carbon tax, bring home powerful paychecks, clear the way to build affordable homes to put those uh, put people uh, in housing that they they can afford. That is a common sense, mainstream Canadian agenda. And I know that Justin Trudeau's supporters are so desperate to distract from that because his political career is falling apart. So we're seeing uh, we're seeing an attempt here to distract and protect Justin Trudeau uh, from his extremely unpopular carbon taxes and other failing policies. But we won't let him or his um, or, or others distract from that reality. So thank you. So you're not going to answer question. that question? Okay, like, uh, honestly, honestly. So that's uh, Teresa Wright. Um, He asked her, give me a source, any source, not seven. Give me a source that you're quoting in the preamble to your question. And she was unable to. Now, let me defend her premise of the question valid if you can quote somebody. But you can't show up and not have done your homework. He's bound to ask you who. If you quote somebody, now if you say, instead of saying, hey, people are saying, you need to say what people. We just, we've done this way too much in the last two and a half years. Experts are saying, do this. Name me the experts. Who are they? What's their expertise? What'd they say before this? Were they right three months ago? Were they wrong? Okay, because we've all had our waves, I suppose, especially when it comes to um, what I'd call COVID-19 coverage. You don't have, you don't have to, the question and the premise is fine. 
Are you doing this? Who's saying this? Here's three sources. I can back that. Okay, I know there's people that are bashing the question completely. I know, but I'm not going to. Okay, now she's doubling down um, because naturally it should be all about her as the reporter, as the story. It should never be that. It should never be that. Um, and and she doesn't mind the egg on the face. Um, she writes, I tried to ask Pierre Pauly ever whether he's trying to court the far right vote. He would not answer the question, saying my question sounded like a CBC smear job and a distraction from the real issues. For clarification, she doesn't work for the CBC. But she wasn't ready and she was totally unprepared. And she was caught with, I don't know, um, you, you, you name your article of clothing down. And um, and I don't care. I, people are writing. Uh, did she burn a bridge with him? That doesn't matter to me. That's not relevant. You just weren't ready. Like if you're going to say experts, you need to provide that expert. Vague innuendo doesn't cover it. You're asking a question to somebody relatively important. And I'd make the case. Do you go that hard at the prime minister? Because if you do, great. This was the argument because then you could document, hey, you didn't answer my question. (laughs) Okay, even Justin Trudeau's most fantastical supporters know that sometimes he gets asked a question and he answers something completely differently. What? That's not what I asked. Would be a great follow up. Forgive me, uh, Prime Minister, but you're not answering the question I asked you. If you're willing to go that far and, uh, you know, swing that uh, lasso around then that's great. You can ask a question like that yesterday. But it's not, I can't respect somebody who's not ready to go. You got to be ready to go. And I, by the way, I've been that I've been that person. I've been that reporter. I've been that reporter. I'll tell you quick, I got a minute to do it. I'm. This is sports, but I remember asking legendary hockey player Steve Eiserman in the fall of 98. I remember like it was yesterday. And some people had cr- exactly what I said, criticized Brendan Shanahan, a couple of columnists, a couple of people on the radio station I worked at for uh, being in a slump prior to. But I used the after there was some criticism of Brendan Shanahan and Steve Eiserman is picking up for his teammate. And he says, by whom? And I'm like, well, there but there was. And he's like, by who? And I wasn't ready and I wasn't organized and I was totally unprepared and I look like a fool. He didn't look like a fool for calling me out. I look like the fool. I abs- And I never forgot it. Provide the sources you're quoting in the preamble to your question. It's not that difficult. I don't mind you asking the question. I know, yeah, 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 price of food, carbon tax, this and that. This is just a distraction. I don't care if you want to ask that question because I said it the same thing. I'm like, it's a mistake to be yip, yip, yapping about the World Economic Forum. That's my opinion. I'm allowed to have it. He can disagree with it. But I'll tell you that it's me saying that. That's something I don't want to do. Same with Doug Ford and the Greenbelt. I want to bring this to you with an element, a tremendous element of objectivity because it's all I got. I got to put my head on the pillow at night and know I said the same thing about Doug Ford that I'd say about Justin Trudeau, that I'd say about Pierre Polyev, that I'd say about Kathleen Wynne or Jagmeet Singh. I have to do that. That's me. Not everybody has to, but I have to. But you're blowing smoke. And you're not you're not ready for the ball game if you show up and say people are saying which people and you got nothing and you've got nothing. I don't I, I cannot I cannot defend it. It's an indefensible question and it looks like bad journalism. That's what it looks like. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Something really important when it comes, I think, to journalism, but also entertainment 
is where this particular scenario with TV Ontario goes. If you don't know, uh, TVO workers held a demonstration yesterday outside their Young Street offices. We're seeing a lot of labor unrest in the province right now. Um, and this dispute is about contract work. It is about wages. Um, and the picket lines could get hit as early as tomorrow. We often have Steve Pakin on from the agenda. Um, he and I have gotten to, to know each other well. And again, there's another person. Don't always agree on everything, but love the perspective, love the angles, love the debate. Meredith Martin's president of the local branch of the Canadian Media Guild. And uh, so she's handling a lot of the back and forth uh, in this particular scenario. And she joins us now on Toronto Today. Meredith, thank you very much for getting up early, relatively early anyway, uh, earlier than Steve Pakin gets up and uh, and making the time for our show today. I appreciate it. Hi, Greg. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Um, this is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to chat again under better circumstances. I want your workers and I want uh, TVO to stay on the air. It's valuable in our household. It's on a lot in our household. And I'm clearly not the only one. What are the big issues that have just that just have taken forever to get either a get attention or b get settled for you and your union. Well, the first one is the fact that the government's insisting that the education workers at TVO be kept on perpetual contract. And we're not interested, interested in having two tiers of employment at TVO, one where people get benefits and one where people don't. And the second issue is wages. Obviously we've actually had a, significantly under inflation uh, growth in our wages for over 10 years. I actually make 15% less than I did in 2012 because I've actually been at TVO since I was um, 28 Mm. and I'm now 50. So I've been there for 22 years. I've grown up on the network and there are a lot of people who have been working there for a long time, diligently and hard providing the services we provide to Ontario who haven't seen a wage increase in over a decade. I think it's a really, I'm glad you said that and, and documented your longevity because I, I know people fondly, I think, I think remember uh, shows they watched when they were younger and depending on the generation that will, uh, that will vary. But I also think they eventually come back to it for current affairs programming, for programming exactly. that, that is about our province specifically. The mandates, I, I want to get into the CBC comparison a bit, but it's very different. But I, I just think there's more than enough people that kind of come in and out of TV Ontario. I know that when my kids were a lot younger, I'd find programming that I thought they can handle this. They can learn from this. This works. And it's it's got an entertainment value as well. And then I can come back to it and find something for my own self a little bit later on. So there's tremendous value. I agree. And it was a network that you could just leave on all day. And you knew that there would be nothing bad on there. Everything would be truthful. And I think that's the really important thing. The journalism, the long format journalism we do, it isn't really done anywhere else. And I think Ontario deserves unique assets. Like it's a very unique asset and Ontario is a growing province and we reflect the province back to itself. And I think Mm. people value that. And I I hope they value that. I really want them to write their MPPs and say that they value that because I don't, we really need the public support here. Now, what, What's valid about a comparison, Meredith, with um, CBC? They obviously get a massive, massive federal budget. Uh, We know that gets debated. That gets thrown around uh, depending on who the prime minister is. Funding goes up. Funding goes down. 
But they've got so much money they can bid on the Olympics. They can. They had Hockey Night in Canada, obviously, on their own for years before the Rogers deal. They can develop a sitcom like Schitt's Creek and pay Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. A TVO's mandate and their goals are a little bit different. Our mandate is education. So we mm-hmm. create educational programming. But I think the main difference is that they have revenue from advertising and we only get revenue from the government or from philanthropy. And I would say, I, I think the philanthropy department could be significantly better. We haven't been running um, promotion of our own show on YouTube for years. We've just started doing that. You can advertise your own show. I think people would accept that. And uh, they don't do it. What's and the, what's the ratio there be, between what's the ratio between government funding and um, and as you call it, philanth- philanthropy, because because obviously we watch PBS, you'd watch PBS and they're very good at it. They're very good at pledge drives. They're very good at asking for what they need. I'm glad you brought that up because I think we should be following the PBS model. And I have no idea why management hasn't been doing that. It is something I brought up to them multiple times. You you can't just expect people to give you money. You have to ask for it. Could the province come back and say exactly what what you've been saying? in that we can offer you so much in terms of, of what we've got, but we want you to do a better job at creating your own inventory and creating your own revenue. Could they say that? Um, yeah, but I think you'd have to significantly change the management structure. Okay. Like they, I, I would say that there's a real lack of accountability by the senior management at TVO, and that's part of the problem. I would love for the government to be more accountable about the way they run the organization. The workers have tons of ideas and have been trying to get them pushed up the, the ladder, but you can't get anything approved at TVO unless it, a manager thinks it was their idea. So if you go on strike and I turned on TVO on the weekend, what would I see? Um, well, I because the strike has been looming, I'm sure that they've got things in the queue that, are pre-taped, but you won't see any any original programming. You won't see anything new on the website. So it'll be interesting. I mean, it's been a 53 years of the organization, and we've never had anything like this. Yeah, you've never had a strike, which is remarkable when you consider it is a, you know, I think we could agree and concur. It's a complex arrangement, like you said, with the provincial government education mandate. And yet, like I said, you've got a very high profile, you know, uh, current affairs show at eight and 11 o'clock that I love. You know that. And I think stacks up with any current affairs show anybody's doing. And, and then there's a lot of other programming that is not sort of as as timely, but is still useful. Yes, absolutely. And it's very sad. Like none of the workers want to be here. We would have absolutely taken an arbitrated settlement and the government doesn't want to do it. It's as if they want us to go on strike. Mm-hmm. I don't even understand why that would be. I Maybe know they want us on the air. I know this is out there. I, I don't buy it myself, but I'm going to float it out to you. That at times um, there have been current affairs programming critical of the Doug Ford government. I don't think that's why this is transpiring, but I know that theory has been floated. Is there anything to it? Does anybody internally think you've been too critical of Doug Ford, um, Christine Elliott, Stephen Lecce, and that, and and they're playing extra hardball with you because of that? I think they're playing extra hardball with us because they don't like the concept of public television. Okay. So. 
it's I think it's ideological, not necessarily personal, but the premier has never been on the show. And we've always had premiers on the show. I don't think he watches the show. I don't think Lecce watches the show. I don't think they care about us. And that's why it's so important for the public to care about us. Hey, Meredith, uh, I wish you the best. Um, TVO means means a lot to me. Uh, I want a fair deal for everybody concerned. Um, so let's keep having these conversations. If it helps, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You bet. Meredith Martin, TVO Union Chair. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Lots of labor unrest. Metro strike. If you predicted a metro strike would go more than three weeks, uh, you were seeing something I wasn't. Potential for labor unrest in education. And yesterday, TVO workers, we talked about that last hour, out potentially, at least to have a protest, because they don't want to be on strike tomorrow. So we'll see what can transpire today. A gentleman that was out visiting the Ontario, the TVO protest is the Ontario Interim Liberal Party leader. He is John Fraser. John, thanks for being patient there. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, happy to be here, Greg. You were out there yesterday. Um, this uh, and again, I'm, we're seeing something here, and and we worried about it because nobody likes their lives to be disrupted, their kids out of school, this and that. But I think the seeds were kind of planted with the QP days of action last year. Um, if I told you there'd be this much unrest less than a year after the provincial election, what would you say? Well, I'm just I'm not surprised because you know the the Ford government and the premier aren't focused on the right things. You know, we're mired in this greenbelt scandal. Uh, when what families really count on are, is you know the healthcare going to be there for my mom when she needs it, or you know my son or daughter needs help at school. Are they going to get the help that they need? Uh, instead, we're just talking about how a, a handful of people took advantage uh, of all of us, and the government helped help them do that. And so they're taking their eye off the ball and. You know, if you look at the case of TVO, uh, you know, what they're, you know, it's a public good and what they're looking for is just simply some stability and a fair wage, which is a reasonable thing. And to run a good organization, uh, you need people and you need stability. And I don't think the government uh, has displayed that they understand that. If you look at Bill 124 or the days, you know, uh, you know, uh, back, back mm-hmm. to the strike, it's just, it was really very uh, hard uh, on the everyday Ontarian. And I, I don't think the government understands that. I, I, I know the, the TVO strike might affect, you know, 100 people, 100 families. There's obviously ripple effects. But I've heard so many people say it is a microcosm of where things are at right now. So is Bill 124 getting struck down. John, I look, every government's going to be like, what were we thinking when we enacted that policy? When you saw this government pushing Bill 124, inflicting it on nurses, public service workers, like not even getting that this might be unconstitutional, which a judge soon enough found it would be, what were your initial thoughts? It, it just looked like a, a skunk from day one. Well, the, it, it looked like it was a skunk from day one. And, you know, we do you know what kind of success that legislation's had in the past. And so, you know, try to warn the government. The, you know, the, the real downside going back to it is, um, it's very hard, obviously, on those frontline workers, those people whose wages are being restricted. But what it does to your organization is, you know, you're trying to drive people out of whatever profession that it is. And it was particularly acute in healthcare, And and so now we have a crisis in, in our hospitals and our long term care homes because we don't have enough nurses and other allied healthcare professionals. So it's, it's, it's actually not managing um you know, managing our economy well or managing those things that families really count on well because you want a stable mm. 
well-educated, skilled workforce, um, and you want to attract people. Like we, we want the best people working in their healthcare system. We don't want to drive people out. And the government's approach to bargaining um, is is kind of ham-handed. You know, it's um, um, not very, um, you know, not, you know, just not a very enlightened approach uh, to what's needed for Ontario families. Um, your party has some momentum behind it now. I don't think that's deniable. You win the two by-elections. You win a big one in Scarborough, Guildwood, keep Mitzi Hunter's seat. I'm sure you were, you know, like, let's face it, last June 2nd, you win your riding again, but I'm sure you go to bed feeling really mixed. The, the, the party did, you know, increased votes, really didn't do much for seats. What are you seeing now? We also have an energy behind the leadership race that I don't think we saw last time where somebody would say, you know, about any of the five candidates, I, I, I would ma- mention Nate Erskine, Smith and Bonnie Crombie are getting the most attention, but there's momentum and there's a bit of unity. How do you view the party and how it's picked itself back up in the last 12 months? Well, we, you know, we worked very, very hard to win those two by-elections and they were both very satisfying. To take one from the Tories was, um, was a great thing. It was great for all of us. And the race itself, um, it helps to build up the party, helps to bring in new members. It helps to... Um, talk to Ontarians about uh, what we're all about and what we want to do for them. So it feels there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of work for us still to do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the last election was really disappointing, mm-hmm. but when you look inside the numbers and not just having more votes to the NDP, but some other numbers in the election, okay, you can see progress. So what you just do is you just, you know, put your head down and, and keep working harder to, to talk to Ontarians about um, what's important to them, listen to them, uh, and so um, it it feels good. Um, you know, we have momentum behind us. Uh, still, a lot of work to do, uh, but it, it feels good. And you know, the two by election wins. You know, I'll have to say for everyone in mm-hmm. our party, just lifted all of us up. Yeah, um, and it's lost a t- Toronto results in the provincial election, John, uh, where where our station is thirty one point nine percent, a massive increase, but it it only results in sixteen percent of the seats. So um, there need to be more votes, and and there needs to be whether it's a choice about candidates, strategic voting, whatever it is. Um, that you know, w- there's got to be momentum that's pushed towards yeah. two thousand and twenty six. I got a blast for now, but I really appreciate you coming on, being out of the TVO rally yesterday. I, I know meant a lot to their workers, so thank you very much for the time today. Thank you very much, Greg. There's John Fraser, Ontario Interim Liberal Leader. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I went to university. I was panicked about plagiarism. You'd go to the library. You'd get a book out. You'd be worried. You'd be like, oh, my God, I hope the professor hasn't read that book. So you would you would not plagiarize. You would change enough around that you were on the safe side of things. And you'd learn in the process. Oh, it's all changed with ChatGPT. It's all changed. Simon Lucent joins us now on Toronto Today. He's written a piece about this, and he really got on the inside of some of these struggles for admins at university, for professors, for faculty members, and yeah, for students themselves. And Simon uh, Lucent joins me now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Um, what a blockbuster piece on Toronto life. Thanks for making the time for us. Thanks so much for having me. When you first heard of something called Chat GPT, did you instantly think this is going to make a tremendous impact on on what professors do and what students do as well? Yeah, I as, as someone I teach in a university, and like so many people who teach, I had my first thought was like, "Is this the end times? <laughs> is, is this is this game just over?" 
Yeah, I, 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 and and that's probably what about a year ago. Are we? We're not. I don't think we're at a calendar year. We're probably eight, nine months, maybe a year. Nine months, yes. So, how did your school year change in terms of knowing that it was available, accessible, being utilized? At first, there was just panic, and I like like so many people who teach. I I was just panicked about it. I I have changed the way I assess students, um, and and my new rule is. Students need to be rewarded for exceeding what a robot can do. If we're at a point in time where a robot can write a generic essay on a generic topic, then that's not good enough for, for, to, to get a passing grade, in my opinion. I think we need to, to move towards a model where you think about, okay, this is what a robot can do. We need students to exceed what a robot could do, because that's what's going to be asked of students in, in the professional world. Um, AI has raised the stakes. It's, it's raised the bar for what a, what a baseline level of competence is, and students now need to be exceeding that baseline. I see you dropped some data that one in five high school students uh, in the United States uh, say they've used AI to complete schoolwork. That number is only going to go up, isn't it? That's 20 percent. That's only going to go up with comfortability with it um, and, and, and knowledge of it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think the numbers might even be higher. Another, another stat that fascinates me is there's a company named Chegg that, that basically writes students' papers for them. Um, and their, their, their share price has just plummeted, which suggests that they've got a formidable new competitor. Students don't need to buy papers anymore. Students, <laughs> students can get papers for free. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I might be a touch older than you, but Rolling Stone magazine, I used to get a subscription to Rolling Stone because I loved it. And they'd, they'd have advertisements in the back where you could send away. And I'm thinking, but won't the teachers and professors know that like they'll be like, I this essay was turned in by somebody who bought it from Rolling Stone two years ago. So there's always been that element. Could I could I slide past something? Could I if I run out of time, could I get someone like Back to the Future's big plot point. What is it? It's Marty. Right. It's George McFly writing essays for uh, for Biff, right? That's so. Wow, it's it, cheating's been around forever. I'd totally forgotten about that. <laughs> Back to the Future, right? I need, clearly, I need to rewatch that movie. So cheating, like cheating's been around forever, and we were conscious of it. And I bet you, again, people were conscious of it in decades prior. But I don't know that university admins and, and instructors, you describe them as panicked instructors. I don't know that they're all on the same page about how to handle this, whereas they might have been back in the 80s and 90s. I think there's a huge amount of confusion and, and um, huge disagreement about what, what even counts as cheating. You know, like I, I think most instructors would agree that if a, if a student puts an essay prompt into ChatGPT and says, hey, ChatGPT, just write my essay for me, that would be cheating. Um, but what about other things? What if, what if a student just generates ideas through ChatGPT? What if a student uh, has ChatGPT suggest some, some ideas? What if a student uses ChatGPT just to write some kind of low-stakes sentences, transition sentences? You know, is that, is that also cheating? Where, where do you draw the line? This technology is so versatile, and it can be used in so many ways. So w- what counts as cheating? And, you know, is, 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 is it a cheating machine or is it a tool? And, and the answer is, well, it kind of depends on how you're using it. And this, this adds to the confusion. How do you regulate this? Simon Lucens, our guest, his piece is on torontolife.com uh, into a chat GPT, artificial intelligence, uh, cheating on North American campuses. Again, I don't expect there to be bans of using chat GPT or any other version of AI. Um, is that is that just going down the wrong road, not just for a censorship perspective, but just basically you're almost challenging when you tell a 19, 20 year old not to do something that they might do it and find a way around it. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there's, yeah, t- t- telling people not to do something is, is sort of like inviting them to do it. Then there's also the problem that how do you catch cheaters? I mean, how do you determine what is cheating and what is legitimate usage? Uh, second of all, how do you catch people? You know, like you, you get a paper, you look at it, it seems kind of fishy. And, and you do what? You think it's maybe AI, AI written? How do you prove it? Will we change how we do exams even in university? Everybody remembers that tenseness and whether it was a multiple choice exam, um, which is those are hard to cheat on, to be perfectly honest, or whether it's an essay exam. That is the moment. I'm, I was more an exam type person because I thought this puts you on the spot. This preps you for life, a job interview, an important moment, thinking on the fly. You have to do it when you teach. I have to do it when I'm sitting here. Like I, I don't want that exam process to change and students just to be able to skate by with being able to, <laughs> to just master artificial intelligence without actually having the spotlight put on them and they got to deliver in that moment. Yeah, you know, exams are helpful because you can still create a world where ChatGPT, you can create a little mini world where ChatGPT doesn't exist, right? You can tell, mm-hmm. you can tell students to write their exams on, on pens and paper and you can force people to think on the fly. I don't think that's the full solution, though. I think exams are great. I think everything you said about thinking on the fly is really important. Uh, I think there's value in slow thinking as well. And that's, that's the beauty of a, of a university essay is that you have to work through something slowly. And I think that, that's what, what, what might be endangered by ChatGPT. And we've always had these debates. You interviewed a student named Sarah in the piece, and I found her fascinating because yeah, right. she was just all about coming up with games to, to memorize. And I thought, uh, are we really, uh, do, do we still give students the best marks just because they have a deeper memory capacity than the rest of us, just because they've figured out how to write up note cards and play little games to remember things as opposed to somebody who's critically thinking? I don't know. That's always been a suspicion of mine, but I'm like, Sarah can be really useful because she can do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think as technology gets better and better at doing memory work for us, the value of memory work Mm. goes down. It's just there's not much to be said for doing something that a robot can do really quickly. Well, yeah, Sarah's got a Sarah's got a great story here. This is on TorontoLife.com. I I want this whole um, piece turned into a 10 part Netflix series, uh, Simon. (laughs) And and you can decide who you'd like to cast a Bradley Cooper, Brad Pitt, other people named Brad. You you call your shot on this one. I really enjoyed the piece. Bradley Cooper. But but no, but no prosthetic. No, I thought so. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm so glad you did. Thanks so much for the time today. It's a great, great uh, deep dive and uh, a lot of work put into it. It's well it's well uh, it's well done. It was really great chatting. Thank you so much, Greg. Awesome. Sam, Simon Lucen joining us. That piece on TorontoLife.com.